Father, our greatest desire is to be with you. There isn't anything like it. We need you, Father. And right now, whether we're gathered here in, in this building, in the overflow room, just down the hall, or on Sunday morning in our own homes, we recognize the reality of what's going on here in corporate worship as we are gathering to praise the one true living God. Our hearts are joined together and we want to see you. We want to know you. We want to, to feel your presence with the worship that we sing. We want to hear your voice with the worshipful reality of your word glorifying your name, Father, as we hear about who you are and what you've come to do in this world. I pray that that would be clear and that Jesus' beauty and worth and splendor would be the greatest treasure we could ever have. Help us today, Father, with this. In the name of Jesus, amen. You guys can grab a seat. Like I said earlier, it's good to be with you. Um, we, uh, we've been continuing our journey through the encounter uh, between Jesus and uh, the Samaritan woman in the book of John, uh, John 4. If you recall from previous weeks, Jesus uh, began this dialogue with this woman by asking for a drink of water. And in this conversation that he's been having with her throughout all of it, he has been teaching this woman and teaching us what it means to love, what that experience is like. He's taught us what it means to be loved by God, and he's taught us what it means to love others. And it begins with this reality of living water. This, this thing that Jesus calls the gift of God, which is his own spirit. According to John 7, this living water is God himself. It is the spirit of God. And so try to get what's going on in this, this chapter is God the Father is giving God the spirit through God the Son to us. That's what's happening in John 4. And it's what John 4 is centered on, and it is the experience of knowing that we are loved by God and that we are called to love other people. So love doesn't start with a list of things to do. Love doesn't start with a compulsion to do specific things. Love begins with understanding our profound need to know God and to love him and to experience our greatest joy in him. That's what our souls were made to drink from God from the very beginning. This woman comes face to face with her own need for God um, in her own thirst for God when Jesus reveals that he knows that she has had five husbands. This was last week, if you recall. And the man that she is with right now is not her husband. At some level, we don't know the details, but we get the picture that she has sought love and affection in all the wrong places. And now at this well, amazingly, real, true love has found her in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is stepping into the barren wasteland of her soul and saying to her, come and drink living water. Drink living water. Drink the fountain of living water. God himself, the God you were created to know the God you were created to love and embrace. 
That's what Jesus is offering her, to turn away from the broken cisterns of this world to the one true God. And yet, upon revealing these, these secrets that she's been hiding, or at least her life that Jesus shouldn't know, but for all practical purposes, this, this woman of Samaria pivots hard away from the conversation she's had with Jesus, it seems at least, and she goes to a completely different topic. That's what happens next in the text, which was what we're going to be looking at today. She's trying to escape and evade Jesus's piercing response to, to, to somewhere, some kind of conversation or topic that she feels is safe. Not about my life, not about my past. I don't want to know about that. Let's talk about something else. And, and, and what we'll discover today, astonishingly, is as far as she's willing to push away from the conversation, Jesus is in the, the one that's in the control of this conversation, and she is actually not moving away from the main issue in her life. She is moving deeper and deeper into this issue than she even realizes. And this begins with John 4.19. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to John 4, verse 19. And what we're about to read comes immediately at, on the heels of Jesus' revelation about this woman and her life. Verse 19 says, The woman said to him, Sir, <laughs> I perceive that you are a prophet. She's very keen on this. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, Well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So today, I, I want to focus on Jesus' response, which is really, if you think about it, has brought all the threads of this conversation that we've been in for the last three weeks, kind of mulling it over, pulling out different parts and looking at it. All the threads of that conversation have been brought together in this one response. The woman is attempting to shift the, the conversation away from her need, but once uh, Jesus uh, reveals that he knows her life, he knows her past. Once that happens, she turns this into a religious conversation, religious debate about worship. What she doesn't realize, however, is that her conversation with Jesus has always been about worship. It has always been about worship. When Jesus first offered her living water, it was about worship. When Jesus revealed to her, listen, I know about your, your, your marriages. I know about your uh, affair with this man. That was about worship. All of this has always been about worship. And so here in her effort to deflect, she's actually penetrating deeper into her greatest need, 
which is a reality of the reality of worshiping God. And so she makes a theological statement about where it is that people are supposed to worship God. That's what happens here. She, she, we said in the first uh, week that Samaritans, um, their people group uh, likely came originally from the children of Joseph. The children were Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, what this means is that when that group of people in Samaria, the Israelites that were in Samaria were, when, when, the, when the, the people were brought off, most of the people in, in all of Israel were brought off, 10 tribes, into Assyrian exile, what happened was the people in Samaria were largely untouched. Many of them remained there by the Assyrian king. And the king of Assyria decides to bring colonists from all over his dominion to live in that same land, the land of Samaria. It was, and it was during that time that the Israelites who were there, the, who are now Samaritans, uh, ended up intermarrying with and adopting all of the religious practices of those nations and their false gods. And this is what ultimately led them to construct a, a view of the Hebrew religion and, and the Hebrew heritage that was very different, dramatically different from the Jews of that time when they returned and believed in the, the Hebrew that we see in the Old Testament. Um, and, and they practiced that. And the Samaritans believed in the Torah. They believed in the first five books of Moses. Uh, but their religion was very much a religion that, that had mixed Judaism with the false beliefs that they had adopted from other nations. And what this meant, among many other things, was that they believed that they should worship in a different place, a completely different place, different geographic location. And this is precisely where the woman goes when she feels cornered by Jesus in this conversation. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, in other words, the Jewish people say, that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. In other words, while we're on the subject of my love life <laughs> and my broken past, what are your thoughts about the geography of worship? Um, Mr. Prophet, like that's what he's asking here. This is evasion. This is classic evasion. You know it because we've all had this happen to us and we've all done it in the past, changing the subjects. By saying this, she is bringing up a massive controversy that is at the, the center of the racial hostility and the racial barrier and the religious hostility that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it was on where they ought to worship, where people truly worshiped. The Samaritans believed it was this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was, was in Samaria and they believed that that was where you're supposed to worship. The Jews obviously believed that true worship could only happen at the temple in Jerusalem. Now notice what happens here in her statement to Jesus. It isn't a question. She's not asking him a question. She's simply stating a fact about the differences in their opinions and she's dropping this controversy on his lap. And no doubt she is hoping that she can rid herself of him. But there's good news for her. Jesus isn't so easy to escape. He says to her respectfully, believe, woman, believe me, believe me. In other words, don't deflect anymore. D don't change the topics. Quit running from what we're talking about here. What I'm about to tell you is reality. Believe it. And he says that both of these religious systems, Judaism and the Samaritan's way of worshiping, which has driven these two people groups apart, 
were about to be upended. Both of them were about to be upended and they were both about to be completely torn down. And so Jesus says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, things are about to change. And he shifts from this mentioning of her own fathers, which probably included all the, the, the fathers of Israel going back to Jacob, because we know that this, is, this was his well. She, he shifts from that to really the only father that actually matters, God. God himself, the fountain of living water. If you want to worship God the Father, it won't be about this mountain, it won't be about Jerusalem. Neither of those will matter in the end when it comes to true worship. The reason she doesn't know this, the reason this is a new paradigm for her is because, as he says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And what this means is that Jesus is saying that it is through the Jewish people, through the Jewish Hebrew scriptures, that salvation comes in the form of the Messiah. The Samaritans' theology was so uh, warped and corrupted by false religions that they, had, had, uh, they didn't realize they were lost. They didn't realize they were blind and ignorant to who the true God was. And so they worshiped someone they didn't know. And they were blind to how he intended to save them. But he says that all of that is about to change. In verse 23, he says, the hour is coming. This is amazing. And now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father, he says, in spirit and truth. For the Father is, listen to this, seeking such people to worship him. So it isn't about Gerizim, he says. It's not about Jerusalem anymore. It's about spirit and truth. When true worshipers worship the Father, Jesus says they do it in spirit and truth because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Think about just that fact. The living God who created all things and sustains all things is seeking people to worship him. He's seeking them. And this has been Jesus' point of the entire conversation. This is why the conversation is even happening. The whole purpose of living water and the whole purpose of exposing this woman's need for him by sharing with her that he knows her past is because God the Father is seeking worshipers. He is seeking people who will be truly committed to him in spirit and truth. Not people who are fixated on, and this is important, external, rote, mechanical systems, but true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so that's the question really about this text today that we're looking at. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Like, why is that important? Why say it like that, Jesus? And part of the reason John, the author of this book, has already given us. You remember earlier in his, in his gospel, in the introduction, um, uh, he uses the word father, which Jesus uses here. Jesus doesn't say you must worship, as a true worshiper, you're worshiping God. He says God is spirit, but God is father. We are worshiping father. And John, earlier in his gospel, the way he introduces God in this book is in John 1, 12 through 13, which if you remember, he says, to all who, who received Jesus, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of 
the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. In other words, these children belong to a father, the father. And so John's introduction to us about the concept of God's fatherhood of his own people is in this text already. Jesus is saying the first picture of what it means to be a true worshiper, the first picture of what it means to to worship in spirit and truth is a picture of a family with God as our father. And then in John 3, which we just saw in the last series, we find out how God brings his children into existence. Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And therefore, in order to, to, to enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus will say, you must be born again. And that birth happens by the spirit of the living God. That's how these children are brought into existence. And so part of worshiping in spirit and truth is deeply connected to how a true worshiper is created and they are created by the spirit, through the spirit, God brings his children into the world who worship him in spirit and truth. But it's not only the spirit that causes that, We know that because of what John's already told us. In order for someone to be born again, they need to hear the truth. They need to hear the testimony, the witness about who Jesus is. And that means that, that, I mean, from the very beginning, John's been explaining this. That means that in order for the spirit to, to work on a person's heart, they need to know the reality of Jesus and the gospel. And if you remember John the Baptist, just a few verses into this book, in chapter one is introduced as this. Listen to this. John the Baptist was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And that bearing witness means he has a message. He has truth he needs to communicate. And therefore, both spirit and truth work together to bring into this world God's children which is precisely why Jesus finishes his statement to this woman by saying, listen, God is spirit. God isn't flesh. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. How else would people who have been born of the spirit of God worship a God who is spirit? And so worshiping God in spirit and truth is a necessity. It is essential to what it means to be a child of God because of how a Christian, how a child of God comes into existence. But what does this look like in our own lives? I think this is practically like where we want to focus on in this text in terms of practical application. The question we would ask is what does this look like? What does it look like to worship in spirit and truth? What does it look like to, 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 to be a true worshiper? Well, the clearest picture of this in the scriptures is obviously in the book of Acts. When uh, the church first comes into existence after God pours out his spirit on his people during Pentecost. Remember Peter in Acts 2, he preaches a sermon, which is the truth about Jesus. And the spirit awakens faith in 3,000 human beings that day. That's day one, ground zero, when the church is born, that's what happens. These are children of God. These are true worshipers. And so here's the question, what do they look like? 
Because they're going to show us what it looks like to worship in spirit and truth. What does it look like? Well, Acts 2.42 begins to tell us. It says that this church, these true worshipers, the children of God, they devoted themselves <clears throat> to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. And listen to this, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's what it looks like to worship in spirit and truth. That is the essence of what it is. That's ground zero of the church and it shows us just what Jesus is talking about in John 4. True worshipers look like Acts 2. And if I'm honest with you, this should be convicting to all of us at some level. We, he, we see here a, a, a deep devotion to God's word. We see an intimacy between these people that is closer than biological family. We see a zeal to sacrifice gr at great expense to themselves for the sake of others. That's what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And, and we could literally, I'm tempted to spend like literally months going through this passage just in my preparation for this one message. There are, there are so many things that could be said about the details, the facets of what this reality is, what this kind of corporate worship might mean. But I wanna focus on just the essence, just like why does this happen? How does it happen? How, how do we have this in our, in our body? Because I mean, let's be real. Nobody had to tell them to do this. Nobody was teaching them, listen, you worship like this. This came to them like breathing air. It was, it was a reality of being born of the Spirit. And therefore, the only possible way they could worship the Father, these people who'd just been brought, these Christians just brought into existence, was in spirit and truth. Think about the way Acts 2 describes it. There's nothing mechanical. There's nothing external, there's nothing superficial, just merely externality about anything going on here. This experience, what they're doing here is real for them. You can see it in, in the words. You could tell that God's love has been poured out into their hearts and they love him and just wanna learn about him and be with him and they love each other. They can't get away from each other. This is what true worship is. It is God wrought love for him as our father and for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4 tells us that we are united by one spirit. I mean, uh, Philippians 2 tells us that we are partakers in the spirit. We are all joined together <laughs> in one spirit. And this is Jesus's point to the, to the Samaritan woman. Why are you worried about mountains? Why are you worried about Jerusalem and Gerizim? I am offering you entrance into the family of God, which will exist for all eternity. And you're preoccupied with geography. And so here's the question for us. I think this is the question that, that bears most of the weight from this text. There's all sorts of questions we could ask, but this is the main question. Do we treat 
worship. And when I say worship, I mean specifically corporate gathering that we see in Acts 2, 4, uh, 42 th- following. Do we see worship like this Samaritan woman who is concerned about the externalities, the superficial reality of it? Or do we recognize like the believers in Acts 2 that we have been born of the Spirit and therefore we have access to the Father and we have a spiritual family that will never end. Like, do we feel that? Do we feel the glory of that, the weight of that reality? That when we gather together in a church service like this, or even online, like gathering online is the same thing. (laughs) When we gather together, um, do we feel the glory of that reality or not? Is it disconnected to us? Do we feel like we live in a completely different space than what they were experiencing in Acts 2? And the way we would answer that question, if we feel the glory, isn't even just like in our objective understanding of the evidence that we see in front of us in our own experience. The way we should ask, the the most uh, incisive way we should ask ourselves are, are we devoted to corporate worship? Do we find ourselves devoted to corporate worship? Or are we distracted by other things? Are we tuned into what's going on in the corporate gathering of worship, whether online or in person, or are we distracted by our phone, distracted by what's going to happen this afternoon, distracted by stuff we don't, we we want to get to because it's more interesting, more exciting to us. Are we inclined to miss a gathering with our brothers and sisters, whether online or in person, are we inclined to do that for recreation? Do we realize the eternal significance of what this is? hearing God's voice in the word and embracing him in worship. Like, do we feel the weight of that? Are we devoted to that? Or would we rather go to a football game? Or would we rather go on a hike if it's a pretty day? And there's nothing wrong with football games and hikes. There is nothing wrong with them. But does it show, does it reveal to us what our true devotion is, what our true desire is? I mean, think about this. Um, these, these people in Acts 2, this came to them naturally. Like they, they couldn't stop being with each other. They wanted to be with each other all day. And, and, and we need to feel the weight of what they felt in Acts 2. We, it cannot be said of us years later that we found God boring. That we were disinterested in God. That is a terrifying position to be in. Think about those people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. They could not get enough of God. They just wanted him. And they wanted to be with people who wanted him. It wasn't sufficient enough to meet once a week. Whether virtually or whether in person. It was not sufficient enough to meet twice a week or three times. It says here, day by day, they were in the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the word of God being preached. And yet in in our own context, if I'm real with you, because I can see the metrics, (laughs) I checked with Jacob this week just to find out how are people plugging in? Are people actually tuning in to worship? And uh, to be honest, some of us barely find the time to click a link and worship in our own homes each week. And if I'm real with you, that is one of the most disheartening things for a pastor. It is one of the most disheartening things about this pandemic for a pastor. 
because it's exposed that for a lot of us, whether in our church or in other churches, it's just playing games. It's not real. We don't feel the weight of this gl- the glory here. It's just not real for them. And it, it, if I'm honest with you, it makes me want to weep. It makes me want to weep. And that's not from a selfish place of having spent hours and hours laboring over God's word uh, to, to communicate what I feel like he's wanting to communicate to the people he's entrusted to this church. It's not that. I'm really wanting to weep over false worship. If there's true worshipers, there are false worshipers, and I am weeping over the mechanical, check-the-box Christianity that if I'm just real with you, it will, in the end, save no one. It was the problem the Pharisees struggled with. They honored God with their lips, but they did not care at all about him in their hearts. And it showed with their devotion. It showed with what they loved. Corporate worship is not a religious obligation. It is the center of reality for the Christian life. I heard someone say, uh, this is not in the manuscript, so hopefully this doesn't sound foolish. I heard someone say, uh, there was a Q&A question, I think it was Ligonier Ministries, and someone asked the question, um, the only Bible teaching church near me is two hours away. I live in a rural area. What should I do? Should I just go to one of the churches that doesn't really preach the Bible well, uh, you know, that's down the street, or should I go two hours? They said go two hours. People have traveled fast, longer than two hours to go to church on Sunday. Go two hours or move there. And I was shocked by both those things, but I shouldn't be because it's that important. It's that critical. It's the difference between not worshiping in spirit and truth and worshiping in spirit and truth. And such an attitude of of just saying, you know, I'm just going to check in and go to a church that doesn't preach the gospel or doesn't doesn't really want to meet with God is unthinkable to the people in Acts 2. They couldn't even comprehend that reality. Worship was the center of their experience in Christ. And if it's not our life and we just do it when we have time or aren't doing anything else that entertains us, then I'm going to be real with you. We should be concerned about that. We should be very concerned about that. But here's where the hope is in the text. And I hope that you saw it earlier. If you didn't, you're going to see it now. And this is where I want to close today. Jesus came to the woman at the well. That was the woman's problem. What's your, what are your thoughts on geography, Gerizim or Jerusalem? That was the woman's fixation, externality. Jesus came to her at this well. She didn't come to him. He was there when she, got, she arrived. He was waiting for her already. And here's the reason why. The father is seeking worshipers. He wants people in his family. He's building a family by his own spirit and by the truth being proclaimed. And Jesus is the visible embodiment of God's own seeking. He is God's seeking of people incarnate in front of her right now. Which is why when this woman tries to evade again at the end, Jesus brings it to a point. She, she says, listen, I, I know that when Messiah comes, you know, the Christ, you ever heard of him? When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. In other words, I don't, I don't necessarily buy what you're saying. I, I don't believe you. I'll, I'll wait for the Messiah and he'll clear this up. Thank you very much. You might be a prophet, you might be clever, but I don't buy it. And Jesus says, well, 
I've got news for you. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And then everything that has happened between him and that woman suddenly clicks in her heart, in her head. And she heads out of town, a com- or heads back into town, a completely different purpose. Because listen to me, the father is seeking worshipers and he's going to have them. He will have them for himself. This woman became one. And there is, God willing, one more message in this uh, series. There's one more interaction left that, that we're going to look at next week before we shift gears a little bit. But what we're looking at right here in the text is really the climax. It is the climax of their conversation. And it, and it tells all of us that at the point of our deepest thirst, at the point of our greatest need, there is a Father in heaven who is seeking you and he's seeking me and he wants us in his family. And it's not because, and you need to hear this, it's not because we have it all together. It's not because we're awesome. It's not because he sees in us a lot of really good stuff that he wants on his side. We are just like, and if you're honest with yourself, you know this, we are just like this woman. We are broken, we are blind to what we need, we are evasive when someone shows us the solution. But that doesn't stop Jesus from pursuing her. That doesn't stop Jesus from loving us and showing us what true love is because the Father really is seeking people who will worship him and will do that in spirit and truth. And those worshipers, like we said earlier, only exist because God has brought them into existence. She wasn't like this before she met Jesus. Now she's in love with him. Now she just, she wants to be with her heavenly father. She wasn't like that before she met Jesus. He creates them. They are his children. They are born of the spirit as the truth is preached. The spirit works in their hearts. They receive the gospel with joy and gladness and they become part of his family. They become true worshipers. And I want, if I'm just straight with you, I I want you to feel this reality. I want you to feel it in your bones. I want you to feel it in your soul. All of this corporate worship, even at home when you're alone in front of YouTube and you're with us in spirit, all of that gathering with the body, corporate worship isn't something you do because you're a Christian or because you feel an obligation to do it. You were created to worship. That's what you were made for. And for those who belong to Christ, This experience is our life. It is not trivial. It is not secondary. It is not a sidebar or a facet of our lives. If you're a true worshiper, this is everything to you. You just want to be with your family. And all that we see in the world that distracts us or all that we see on on these things that distracts us from that will one day fade into nothing and be a shame to us. But think about this. The church the people that are in this room right here now who really do love Jesus will be worshiping God the Father forever. Endless ages. Corporate worship is not a sidebar. Jesus is right now in talking, or in this text talking to us. This isn't just a story from 2,000 years ago. This is him reaching out through the word and saying, I'm talking to you. I know you heard my voice to the Samaritan woman but I really want you to hear my voice to you. And Jesus, who embodies the Father's 
seeking of worshipers for himself is reaching out his hand with a drink in it of living water and he's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is good. He is worth releasing your death grip on everything in this world that will never satisfy and coming to the center of his love, which is with his family, in his family's presence to worship him and love him. Corporate worship should never be trivialized. Those who are born of God must worship in spirit and truth. And what this means at the very least is that they are zealous to be with God's people even if it's a Zoom call. They are zealous to be in the word and to hear it preached and to read it and study it and soak it up and they are zealous to sing his praises and to to worship him. That's what it means to be in God's family. And Jesus, who paid for every single true worshiper to come to him with his own blood on the cross is calling for all of us, even people who trust him, to receive this water and to worship in spirit and truth, not to play games with corporate worship. It's not a game. We need to recognize that Christians, as we see them in Acts 2, were how Christians are always meant to be throughout the ages. That in this room, there is a family. I mean, think about this. I mean, it's mind-boggling. This family will outlive the cosmos. Every star in the sky, every rock you see on the ground will be nothing. But the church will remain to the glory of the Father. And we will spend all of eternity in the joy of our master, our savior, Jesus Christ, exalting in the father who sought us even when we were undesirable and running from him. And he will not stop seeking his family. Even at the infinite price of his own son, he will find every last child. They will be brought into his family and they will become true worshipers. Corporate worship of the father is the most sacred experience a human being can possibly participate in. There isn't anything like it. Because it's the only experience we know that will continue after this life is over. And it's ours now. It's our inheritance, it's our right. So as we worship with communion here, as we partake in the elements, if your faith is in Christ, you are invited to to take the elements and participate during this next song. As we do that, let us go to our Father and plead with him to make this real for all of us, every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We do love you. I know that I know that in all of our hearts, there is the waxing and waning of our affections when life comes in and interrupts us. We love you. We desire you. We long for you. We want you. You are the greatest treasure in the universe. And you gave up your son so that we could taste and see that treasure. I I pray right now, Father, that in all of our hearts, whatever distractions we have in us that are trying to choke out the desire to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what that looks like in the middle of a pandemic, 
to just be with them in some capacity. Whatever's choking out the desire to listen to the word of God being preached and embrace it for what it is and get into our Bibles and saturate our hearts with your glory. Whatever is distracting us from that, Father, I pray that you would remove the enemy's hand. Do not allow him to choke this out. May the seeds of your grace, whether it be worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, or whether it be the word, or whether it be anything that we do in corporate worship, Father, may the seeds of your grace fall on soft, tender soil. And may you do a great work in our hearts to make us see the significance that we have a family in this room, people, human beings that we are sitting next to, that we are worshiping with, who will be with us for all eternity. When everything else is gone, we will be there with the Lamb, worshiping God our Father. We ask that that weight, that glory would fall on us in an appropriate way. In the name of Jesus, amen.